Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Okay, so I remind you, you are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers, L.A. are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Right, so uh, we have quite a few articles here with regards to Diane Feinstein and her passing last week. We'll get to those as soon as possible, but unfortunately, there are a few other obits that we'd like to bring to you, starting with this one from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, September 30, 2023. Wayne Ratkovich, 1941-2023, to 2023, Developer Championed LA Architectural Gems by Roger Vincent. Real estate developer Wayne Ratkovich, who saved the Art Deco-style Wilton Theater and several other aging landmarks from the wrecking ball while changing attitudes about Los Angeles' historical structure, has died at 82. He died Sunday at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in L.A. of complications from an aortic aneurysm, his family said. Ratkovich renovated some of the city's best-known architectural gems that had fallen on hard times in an era when ever-evolving L.A. wasn't much interested in preserving buildings that had grown old and were considered obsolete. Structures from the late 19th and early 20th centuries were routinely raised, uh, including the 1929 Richfield Building downtown that was widely considered an Art Deco masterpiece. In the mid-1980s, developers and preservationists were almost at war with each other, Developers claiming a property, claiming property rights and preservation is saying, this is the heart of our city, Radkovich told the Times in an interview. Early in his career, after buying and restoring glamour to the Oviet building, a former fancy men's clothing store and office tower from the 1920s containing literally tons of laloque glass and other artistic flourishes, Radkovich garnered a reputation as a developer who could bring faded stars back to the fore. Among them were the elaborately decorated fine arts building downtown and a cluster of buildings in Playa Vista that were once based on Howard Hughes' aviation empire, including the uh, hangar where Hughes built his infamous Spruce Goose airplane. Many of his makeovers were financially successful, but others didn't pay off for him. Develop is like oil, uh, oil wildcatting or farming, he once told the Times. There are some good years and some that aren't so good. Ratkovich, who played football at UCLA, was willing to tackle real estate projects other developers considered wor uh, worthy but avoided because they looked financially risky and miserably hard and uh, to complete, competitor Dan Rosenfield said. Among them were the Block, B-L-O-C, a shopping, hotel, and office complex in L.A. that fills our downtown city block. Ratkovich turned the 1970s-era indoor mall into an outdoor center in an, uh, in an uphill struggle. Unexpected construction issues slowed work and helped drive costs well over the original $180 million budget to more than $250 million before it, his company sold its interest in the project in 2018. It is now filled with stores, restaurants, and a movie theater. That was one of the very toughest projects in Los Angeles, Rosenfeld said. Wayne took, took on the most difficult and the most worthwhile cha uh, challenges on the urban landscape. 
Radcliffe Hitch's 2010 investment in the decrepit former Howard Hughes campus when the Playa Vista mixed uh, mixed use community was being created near Marina del Rey was a high profile financial success, as was his redevelopment of the 45 acre former campus of C.F. Braun Engineering in Alhambra into an office and retail complex. At the time of his death, Radkovich and his partners have been working on another challenging high-profile project, West Harbor, a long-anticipated waterfront attraction in San Pedro that faced years of regulatory and financial hurdles. West Harbor had been in the works for more than a decade when port officials selected Los Angeles developers Ratkovich Company and Jericho Development Incorporated to redevelop the 42-acre site of Ports O. Cal, the kitschy imitation of a New England fishing village built in the 1960s fell out of favor years ago and was raised in 2018. The $155 million first phase of West Harbor, now under construction, will have bars, shops, and restaurants such as Yamashiro, the second branch of a Japanese-themed Hollywood destination for locals and tourists. Plans include a proposed amphitheater being developed with music and theater impresario Niederlander Organization. Other Radkovich makeovers of historic structures include the 1920s vintage drive-in at Chapman Market in Koreatown and uh, 5900 Wilshire, a sleek 30-story office tower completed in 1969 across Wilshire Boulevard from the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Rakovich was born on May 29, 1941 in Los Angeles, the youngest of six children of immigrants from Serbia. By the time he was 10, his father had saved enough money to buy five acres of land in Hacienda Heights, moving the family to a farm where they grew lemons and avocados and raised chickens. His father later bought a four-unit apartment complex and moved the family into it. Selling the properties grow, seeing the properties grow in value after his father's work and sacrifice made investing in land the through line of his career, Ratkovich said. Upon graduating from UCLA in 1963, Ratkovich took a job as a real estate broker. He then spent five years as an industrial real estate developer before an offer to buy the 12-story Oviat building came across his desk in 1977. The building, owned by the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, was priced cheaply on the assumption that the new owner would want to demolish the structure and operate the property more profitably as a parking lot. Radkovich determined that the building could be profitably renovated and chose to embrace the city's designation of the building as a historic cultural landmark instead of fighting it. The renovated Ovia proved attractive to tenants, including a fancy eatery in the former haberdashery on the ground floor that is now the Chicana Restaurant and Lounge. He purchased the building for $450,000 and spent about $5 million to restore it before selling it for $13.5 million. The experience with the Ovia changed forever my role as a developer, Ratkovich said in 2020. I no longer had interest in factories and warehouses. I realized that my little company could make a positive difference in the city, and it was something I wanted to continue to do. Among Ratkovich's volunteer service was a position on the board of directors of Homeboy Industries, a gang rehabilitation program founded by Father Gregory Boyle. 
We were lucky to have them as a board member who rolled up his sleeves and helped us implement the physical expansion of Homeboy across Los Angeles, Boyle said. Bratkovich is survived by his wife, Joanne, son, Milan, and daughters, Anna and Lindsay. That was Walter Ratkovich, 1941-2023, developer-championed L.A. architectural gems by Roger Vincent. From the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 30, 2023. Okay, here is something from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 4, 2023. Farron Tessa Feingold, September 19, 1980 to September 26, 2023. Author unknown. Farron Feingold, an esteemed artist, has passed away at the young age of 43 after an accelerated battle with cancer. Born on September 19, 1980 in San Francisco, Farron moved with her family to Los Angeles in 1981. Farron displayed a prodigious talent for art at a young age. She honed her skills in high school, attending Crossroads School of Arts and Sciences in Santa Monica. The Los Angeles native moved to New York at the age of 17 to study at the Parsons School of Design. After earning her, earning her BFA between Parsons and Glasgow School of Art, she worked as a fashion designer. In 2016, she transitioned to dedicating a career to her passion as an artist. Her distinctive style, characterized by delicate ethereal, ethereal watercolors that often explored themes of femininity, sensuality, and empowerment. Celebrated as a trailblazing artist on a meteoric rise by Vogue, her watercolors gained recognition from collectors and critics alike for their sensitive, dreamlike colors, graceful brush, and rendition of the female nude. Farron's work was featured in exhibitions across the United States and internationally, including her debut solo show in 2017 and most recent solo show, Wet Dreams, in 2021 at the Untitled Space Gallery in New York City. Farron's untimely passing left a void in the art world. However, her artistic legacy lives through lives on through her captivating works that continue to inspire and captivate. Farron is survived by her parents, David and Sandy, brother and sister-in-law, Jacob and Lisa, and three nieces. That was Farron Tessa Feingold, September 19, 1980 to September 26, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, October 4, 2023. All right, here's something else from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, October 5th, 2023. Jerome J. Horowitz, January 21st, 1930 to September 30, 2023, author unknown. Jerome J. Horowitz, son of Nathan and Esther Horowitz, died peacefully at home on September 30. He was 93 and a half. Jerry grew up in a modest home in the Mid-Wilshire District of Los Angeles. After graduating from Fairfax High School, he attended UCLA, where he excelled as a gymnast. His rope exercises and artistic ring work were lauded by the UCLA Daily Bruin, which likened him to Johnny Weissmuller of the Tarzan movies. After graduating, he married Marilyn Geltman, with whom he had three children and he worked for more than 20 years with his father at Horowitz & Company Insurance. After Marilyn and Jerry parted ways in 1974, he was remarried to Margarita Soto and adopted her son, Mark, whom he raised as his own son. They were happily together for 49 years, and Margarita was at his side when he passed. 
Possessed of a sharp wit and wry sense of humor, Jerry would often pull his friend's legs, only to chuckle at being taken literally. I was just being facetious, he'd say. A diehard Dodger fan, he rooted for the team at scores of games, even at the L.A. Coliseum while Dodger Stadium was being built. He listened to Vince Scully call hundreds of games over a good old-fashioned radio. He loved his alma mater, taking his son Stephen to many UCLA football games in the 1960s. In the early 1980s, Jerry joined the staff at Hillside Mortuary, where he worked for nearly 35 years, helping hundreds of families in their time of need. Upon hearing of Jerry's passing, one colleague there paid tribute, saying Jerry was a great teacher and mentor. Jerry loved music and attended many a concert at the Hollywood Bowl, and he admired his children who were accomplished at their respective instruments. But above all else, Jerry had one passion that well defined the men. He loved to fish. Whether casting in the surf from a pier or from a glass-bottom boat off Catalina Island, the old man loved the sea. He leaves behind his wife Margarita, daughters Jody and Michelle, sons Stephen and Mark, daughter-in-law Jennifer, and grandson Zachary and Nicholas. Jerry wouldn't want his friends, family, and colleagues to grieve. Instead, he would ask us all to remember the words of the good Dr. Seuss who reminded us, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. That was Jerome J. Horowitz, January 21st, 1930 to September 30, 2023, author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, October 5th, 2023. Okay, here's one more here from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, October 6, 2023. Barbara Shanine Rosenthal, December 4, December 4, 1944, September to September 24th, 2023, author unknown. It is with profound sadness that we announce the passing of Barbara Chahin Rosenthal, age 70, on September 24, 2023, after a brief but courageous battle with mesolioma. A beloved wife, mother, sister, and, and friend to many, Barbara leaves behind a legacy of love, kindness, and cherished memories that will never be forgotten by all who had the privilege of knowing her. Born on December 4, 1944 in El Salvador, Barbara was the baby sister of five children born to Jose and Sarah Chahin. Barbara uh, later came to California at the age of 14 to attend Immaculate Heart High School. Upon graduation, Barbara worked at Parsons for several years and soon after met the love of her life, Peter Rosenthal, who hails from New York City. Together, they lived in several states before settling permanently in La Cañada Flint Ridge in 1973. Barbara was a woman of many interests and talents. She was a gifted artist and had a lifelong passion for tennis, theater, opera, travel, and also had a surprising need for speed for such a modest and gentle soul. For instance, she once drove a NASCAR race car on a local track as well as supporting a still-flying B-24 bomber with Peter. Although not a pilot, she was once given the controls of a T-6 trainer and P-51 Mustang where she rolled the T-6, and rolled and looped the P-5-1. She loved every second of these experiences. Additionally, Barbara was a true animal lover, caring for her dogs, horses, birds, fish, and among other animals. She was also admired for her professionalism as the CFO of VIP Trust Deed Company, where she worked alongside her husband up until her passing. 
Her unwavering dedication and hard work were an inspiration for all who knew her. Family was the center of Barbara's life. She was a dedicated mother and grandmother, always there for the family with a keen interest in the de their development over the years. She and Peter also recently celebrated their 55th wedding anniversary and were still madly in love right up to the very end. In addition to her devotion to her family, Barbara was a cherished friend to many. Her inspiring generosity, kindness, compassion, and sincere interest in others endeared her to all who had the honor of crossing her path. She had a way of making everyone feel truly valued and loved. Those were, who were blessed to know her knew those who were blessed to know her know they had been touched by an angel. Barbara survived by her loving family, including her husband Peter, her children Diana, Peter, uh, Hutton, Robert, Jody, Rosenthal, and their three grandchildren, Caleb, Ben, and Emma. Barbara's also survived by her sister Angela, nieces, and nephews. As we mourn the loss of Barbara, we also celebrate her remarkable life and love and joy as uh, she brought into our lives. The legacy of love, kindness, and generosity will continue to inspire us all. Though she may no longer be with us in person, her spirit will forever live in on in our hearts. A celebration of life will be announced later in the year. In lieu of flowers, please support Lifesavers, a wild horse rescue organization, www.wildhorserescue.org. We extend our deepest gratitude to all those who have supported, her, supported us during this difficult time. Your thoughts, prayers, and acts of kindness have been a source of strength and comfort. We, uh, Barbara would have wanted us all to enjoy every moment and cherish family and friends. We hope you do so in her honor. Rest in peace, dear Barbara. You will be forever missed but never forgotten. The Rosenthal Family. That was Barbara Chahin Rosenthal. December 4, 1944 to September 24, 2023. Author unknown from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times. Friday, October 6, 2023. Okay, now we're going to move on to articles regarding Dianne Feinstein. Uh, we know, as you know, she passed away uh, this past week, 1933 to 2023. And so this article is from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 30, 2023. Her final moments included Key Vote by Noah Bierman and Doyle McManus. Washington. Senator Dianne Feinstein wasn't feeling well this week, so she skipped a Thursday morning Judiciary Committee meeting, as has become her custom since her health declined in recent months. But she had told Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer, Democrat of New York, that she would be available if he needed her for an important vote. He needed her. Congress was locked in another stare-down with far-right lawmakers over keeping the government open, and the Senate was hoping to extend a Saturday night deadline. Just after noon, Feinstein walked onto the Senate floor in a purple suit with the help of her chief of staff, James Sauls. She raised her right hand as she told the clerk, I. Most of the other senators had already cast their votes and had gone back to their offices. Feinstein appeared to catch a glimpse of Senator Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, who looked up from her phone to offer a warm smile. She voted to make sure that our country would continue to move forward and not shut down, Murray recalled in a tribute from the same Senate floor Friday. That was Diane. She did her job every day. It was the last of more than 9,500 votes Feinstein cast in three decades 
and her last appearance in the Senate, an institution where she went from a power broker in her prime, shaking up the national security establishment, to a 90-year-old lawmaker who struggled to leave her home amid demands that she hasten her retirement plans. She did not return for two more votes related to the Endangered Species Act later in the day on Thursday. She was instead driven back to her spacious brown, uh, brownstone northwestern Washington, northwest in Washington, where she changed into a more casual blue jacket to greet Jane Carmen, a retired Los Angeles member of the U.S. House, of, House and a friend of more than four decades who shared her passion for foreign affairs and advancing women leaders. She was put together. She was enormously present. She was trying to talk me into running for Congress again, Harmon said in an interview. Harmon said no to the political comeback, but yes to Feinstein's other idea, a series of dinners with influential Beltway women that Harmon intends to now christen as the Die-Fi Dinners. As they sat and talked, Feinstein had her daily schedule in front of her and her dog Kirby, too, sitting on her lap. The first Kirby had died, but her late husband, Richard Bloom, surprised her with Kirby, too, on an airplane. The two women discussed politics, families, and friends. Harmon thought Feinstein looked better than she had all year. Feinstein had to bow out of a lunch in her honor at, at Harmon's house just a few weeks ago, canceling at the last minute after all the other guests had arrived. The recent criticism of Feinstein amid her frail physical state had been hurtful, Harmon said. Feinstein thought she needed to stay on the job to make sure California was taken care of in the budget, she said. In Feinstein's earlier years, that woman never stopped, said Alexis Podesta, who served as her scheduler from 2002 through 2007. The calls and meetings started when she left her house and ended with dinner appointments. Thursday, the senator seemed lucid and content, enjoying the chocolates and garden roses Harmon bought. Life is fragile. We knew she was declining, but no one knew the end was now. And certainly she didn't, Harmon said. She was planning for her future and thinking about the country. About 5 p.m., Feinstein's housekeeper, Rosalinda Ilagan, took a picture of the old friends. Harmon gave Feinstein a hug and a kiss and told her she loved her. Feinstein's daughter, Catherine, came by in the evening and stayed the night. Feinstein went to bed sometime after Harmon left and died around 2 a.m. Friday, according to her office. That was her final moments included key vote by Noah Bierman and Doyle McManus on the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 30th, 2023. Times staff writers Aaron B. Logan, Sarah D. Wire, and Kwasi Yami Asidu contributed to this report. And now here's something from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 30, 2023, A Life Defined by Stubbornness by Mark Z. Barabak. On Thursday, Dianne Feinstein cast her final Senate vote on a measure aimed at preventing a looming government shutdown. Hours later, she was gone. That last public act is a fitting one for California's legendary U.S. Senator. Her life was devoted to politics and public service, words she used with sincerity and no hint of irony. In truth, Feinstein really had no other life outside government, which explains why she remained in office, a shell of her old self at age 90, long after mental and physical incapacity should have forced her retirement. It was selfish, no doubt, 
though it should be noted Feinstein was re-elected handily at age 85 when her diminished state was plain for voters to see. There was another, more admirable side to that stubbornness and refusal to quit, a ramrod determination and unsinking resilience that girded Feinstein through a lifetime filled with, ma with maelstrom. A nightmarishly abusive childhood, widowed widowhood at a relatively young age, a recall effort, an attempted assassination, failed tries at office, and a political career headed to an unremarkable end until a blink it wasn't. Feinstein had planned on quitting politics on the day November 1978, on the November 1978 day that San Francisco Mayor, Mayor George Moscone was shot and killed along with Harvey Milk, her colleague on the Board of Supervisors. As board president, Feinstein assumed the job she twice failed to capture on her own. It was a cinematic moment captured in a television ad that years later catapulted her into contention for California governor. Feinstein lost the 1990 contest narrowly, but two years later, her momentum carried her into the U.S. Senate, where she became one of the most important and consequential lawmakers the state has ever sent to Washington. It is easy now to overlook, after Feinstein's sad and diminished final days, the commanding and regal figure she once was. Feinstein ruled over San Francisco like a potent state, hands-on and fingernails dug in. She became, according to polls, one of the most admired women in America and nearly landed as Democrats' 1984 vice presidential nominee. She was a pathblazer for women in politics. It was not just aspiring to offices that once seemed off-limits. Rather, Feinstein showed the possibilities of women in power by becoming a Senate master on subjects such as crime, national defense, and intelligence policy, areas once widely seen as beyond the purview of a female lawmaker. She fought the National Rifle Association and scored a rare victory by pushing through a 10-year ban on assault-type weapons. She muscled through legislation protecting a vast swath of the California desert. She brought the CIA to heel with a report condemning its detention and interrogation practices. Covering her steel core was a thick skin. Never let them see you cry was the advice Feinstein gave and the title veteran political reporter Jerry Roberts used for his 1994 biography of her. Despite her San Francisco pedigree, Feinstein was despised by many on the political left who found her personality too prissy and politically too centrist. She made her entry on the state political scene being booed at a Democratic convention for defending the death penalty. Feinstein eventually changed her stance. Disdainful liberals were among the loudest voices seeking her exit when she fell ill. It was a sign of changing times, which were not kind to Feinstein, and not just because of the physical and mental affirmities that came with her advanced age. Politics is much different than when she started. There was less room and inclination for bipartisanship. There was a performative aspect, tweets and stunts and show-off antics aimed not at passing legislation or accomplishing very much of substance, but rather at scoring points and owning the opposition. That was neither Feinstein's strength nor inclination. She regularly infuriated fellow Democrats by reaching across the aisle to work with Republicans. Her political trademarks were pragmatism, independence, and moderation. Three qualities in short supply in our current toxic political atmosphere, Roberts said Friday. 
Soon after President Trump took office, Feinstein caught unshirted hell from the left for suggesting just maybe and uh, make the best of it concession that if Trump performed 180 and change, he might make a good president. It was a triumph of hope over experience, but showed a willingness to at least give the other side the benefit of the doubt. Those who knew her well, and few knew Feinstein better than Roberts, insist that she would never bow to pressure, however strong and unrelenting, and leave the Senate before she chose. Indeed, in characteristic fashion, <clears throat> Feinstein departed on her own terms, suddenly and despite her widely chronicled ailments, unexpectedly. She remained under, uh, determined, unwavering, and for good or ill, fixed on her course to the very end. That was A Life Defined by Stubbornness by Mark Z. Barabak from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 30, 2023. Here's another tribute article from the same Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 30, 2023. Slaying of Milk, a Defining Event for Feinstein. Her decades-long crusade for gun control was born of 1978 tragedy by Terry Castleman. On a cool autumn morning, 45 years ago, Diane Feinstein was the first to find the body. It was November 1978, and San Francisco's supervisor Harvey Milk had just been shot dead in his city hall office. I could smell the gunpowder. Harvey was on his stomach, Feinstein told the Times in an interview in 2018. I tried to put a, I tried to find a pulse. I put my finger in a bullet hole. The assassination forever altered the course of Feinstein's political career and shaped her views on gun control, a defining legacy for the U.S. senator who died Friday at 90. A few hours after finding Milk's body, Feinstein broke the news that embittered the former supervisor, embittered former supervisor Dan, that embittered former supervisor Dan White had killed Milk one of the nation's first openly gay elected officials, and married George Moscone. As president of the Board of Supervisors, it is my duty to make this announcement. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed, Feinstein said at a press conference, drawing gasps and shouts from the scrum on a balcony at City Hall. After several seconds, she continued, The suspect is Supervisor Dan White. From there, the news of the assassination shook the country. Earlier that morning, Feinstein had told reporters that she was quitting politics after two unsuccessful runs from mayor. But as acting mayor, she was chosen to serve the remainder, remainder of Moscone's term and would go on to win two mayoral elections. I became mayor as the product of assassinations, Feinstein said in the 2018 Times interview. For a time, she had a permit to carry a handgun in her purse after an anti-capitalist terrorist group planted a bomb outside her daughter's bedroom window and shot out windows at her vacation home years before Milk's assassination. I made the determination that if somebody was going to try to take me out, I was going to take them with me, Feinstein told the Associated Press. But she stopped carrying the gun after wondering how quickly she could arm herself in an emergency. I thought, hmm. This isn't going to do me much good, she said. By 1982, she had signed a local ordinance banning most San Francisco residents from owning pistols and turned in her 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver, the same model White used to kill Moscone and Milk to be melted down by police. The ordinance was later invalidated by the courts. As her star rose, despite a failed bid for California governor, 
finds that it's set aside on the U.S. Senate. Just months after winning office in a 1992 special election, Feinstein wrote a landmark federal assault weapons ban prompted by a mass shooting that left eight people dead at a San Francisco law firm. The powerful National Rifle Association mounted an attack against Feinstein's effort joined by elected Republicans. The gentle lady from California needs to be a bit more, a little more familiar with firearms, Senator Larry Craig, Republican of Idaho, said on the Senate floor. Feinstein locked eyes on Craig and recounted the morning when she had rushed to Mick's office after hearing gunshots, finding her bloodied body on the floor. Senator, she said, I know something about what firearms can do. Ten years after President Clinton signed the assault weapons ban in 1994, the landmark legislation expired, never to be renewed. But the killings of Moscone and Milk stayed with her throughout her political career and helped her and helped form who I am and what I believe, she told the San Francisco Chronicle in a story on the 30th anniversary of the assassinations. Mass shootings have been a staple on American life in the decades since, and with each successive horror, Feinstein renewed her calls for stricter gun control. In a 2013 argument on the Senate floor with Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, as Feinstein pushed for a new federal ban on assault weapons, she connected recent tragedies to her experience in 1978. I've walked in. I saw people shot. I've looked at bodies that have been shot with these weapons, she said. I've seen the bullets that implode. In Sandy Hook, youngsters were dismembered. After shootings that killed a combined 31 people last year in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas, Feinstein asked on the Senate floor, what will it take for us to hear the wake-up call and pass stronger gun control legislation? The Senate's failure to act, she said, was all but guaranteed after an action followed countless mass shootings, including massacres at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida that had drawn furious pleas from Feinstein. And make no mistake about it, it will cost lives, she said. In eulogizing her Friday, colleagues remembered her tenacity. We were not only colleagues, but neighbors and friends, Representative Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of San Francisco, said in a statement calling the now lapsed federal assault weapons ban on an, an essential template for ending gun violence. Representative Katie Porter, Democrat of Irvine, who is running for Feinstein's seat in 2024, posted on social media that Feinstein was a trailblazer for women in California politics and her leadership on gun violence prevention and anti-torture made our nation more just. Governor Gavin Newsom, who signed several bills this week advancing California's efforts on tightening its firearm laws, called Feinstein an early voice for gun control. Every race she won, she made history, but her story wasn't just about being the first woman in a particular political party. It was what she did for California and for America with that power once she earned it, Newsom said in a statement on social media. That's what she should be remembered for. That was Slaying of Milk, a Defining Event for Feinstein by Terry Castleman from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 30, 2023. Times staff writer Sima Mehta contributed to this report. All right, and now here is an opinion article from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 30, 2023. Solid, strong, and powerful, Dianne Feinstein's extraordinary legacy is personal as well as political for Californians by Jim Newton. Dianne Feinstein leaped into the lives of many Californians, including mine, in 1978 
when she lost two colleagues by the hand of a third. It was morning, the morning of November 27th, and San Francisco was in the middle of a political scrum. Supervisor Dan White had recently resigned from office only to reconsider and try to recover his position. George Moscone, the mayor, thought about appointing him, but was urged by more liberal members of the Board of Supervisors, especially Harvey Milk, to reject White's request and instead seize the opportunity to fortify the board's liberal majority. Distraught, White sneaked into City Hall that morning, went to Moscone's office, shot him dead, reloaded, walked across the hall, and killed Milk. Feinstein, a member of the board, heard the shots from inside her office, rushed into the hall, and smelled and smelled the gunpowder. White brushed by her, ignoring her as she asked what was happening. More shots. Then she headed to Milk's office and found him on the floor. She groped to find a pulse and her, her, and her finger slipped inside a bullet hole. There's no mistaking dead, she told me in 2019 when I interviewed her about those events for a biography of her friend, Governor Jerry Brown. The assassinations of a mayor and pioneering civil rights figure would have rolled any, roiled any city, but they came especially hard for San Francisco that November. Just 10 days earlier, the Reverend Jim Jones of San Francisco's People's Temple had ordered the deaths of more than 900 of his followers at a compound known as Jonestown and Guyana. The horror of that carnage rippled back through San Francisco, and when Moscone and Milk were killed, many assumed that their deaths were somehow related to the massacre. I was one of them. I was a high school sophomore at the time, growing up in the Bay Area. After Jonestown, the reports of gunfire at San Francisco City Hall sent an already chaotic world over the edge. I can vividly remember the feeling that something was badly broken, maybe beyond repair, and then Diane Feinstein stepped up. Calmly addressing a shell-shocked group of reporters and news cameras at San Francisco City Hall, Feinstein looked rattled but spoke clearly as she announced the deaths of her colleagues and the stunning news that White was suspected of killing them. Feinstein projected poise that day, and in the days that followed, she restored order by force of her personality. She brought San Francisco through grief and back to solid footing. And she did that all for me, too. I had the chance to thank her for her leadership through the, that crisis when we spoke about those events and about Jerry Brown. She seemed a little taken aback to be thanked for her actions 41 years earlier, but she was gracious and appreciative, reserved, of course, but also moved, I think. Feinstein leaves a large political legacy, but for many Californians, her greater gift may be personal. She was a stable and continuing presence in this state's li uh, life, part of its transition from its wacky place in the counterculture to its solid leadership of the nation's thoughtful left. In that, she was joined by Brown, both of them committed to a politics beyond conventional partisanship, while also thoroughly committed to the Democratic Party. They were different. Feinstein was part of a long tradition of reaching across the aisle, while Brown was more likely to reach around it altogether. But they grew up together. Both were born in San Francisco, and Feinstein went to school with Brown's sister and shaped modern California together. Feinstein's centricism sometimes left her outside the main current of California politics. She was a moderate in San Francisco, which does not have much use for moderates. Her willingness to court and advertise friendships with Republican colleagues was useful and helped make, make her effective, but it antagonized the more liberal elements of her party.
As her health failed in recent months, she rebuffed liberal members of her party who urged her to step down. Centrist, however, uh, who was who she was, ideologically, temperamentally, and stubbornly. She sought compromise and order. She was the person who remained calm in a crisis, unmovable in a storm. She was the most important woman in the modern history of California, not because of any uh, single legislative achievement, but because she was recognizably solid, powerful, and strong. Her death created an unusual opportunity for her friend and one of her successors as San Francisco mayor, Governor Gavin Newsom, who now becomes the first governor since Earl Warren in the mid-20th century to have the opportunity to appoint both of the state senators. Newsom already uh, filled the vacancy created by Kamala Harris, becoming vice president with the Senate's first Latino, Alex Padilla. Now he has promised to appoint a black woman to finish Feinstein's term. Whomever he picks will have the unenviable task of following one of California's greatest figures, a gifted politician, perhaps the most importantly, a leader who came to prominence in a crisis and guided her constituents to safety. That was Solid, Strong, and Powerful by Jim Newton from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, September 30, 2023. Jim Newton a former columnist and editorial page editor of the, of the Times, is editor of Blueprint Magazine at UCLA and a regular contributor to Cal Matters. Okay, and here's this one from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 1st, 2023. Heart of Feinstein's Legacy Will Always Be San Francisco by Kevin Rector, Sonia Sharp, and Benjamin Oreskes. San Francisco. Hours after Senator Dianne Feinstein died on Friday at the age 90, Tanya Chacon walked up to a pair of ornate tables set up in San Francisco City Hall for mourners to write their goodbyes. A city native who works in the building of, for the Assessment Appeals Board, Chacon said she had cried at the news that morning. Now she was the first member of the public to sign the city's condolence book for Feinstein, who served on the local board of supervisors and for a decade as mayor before starting her long Senate career. Chacon, a 48-year-old Latina raised by an immigrant family in the Mission District, was full of memories of Feinstein in the city, she said, of meeting her as a kid and marveling at her ability to cut a path for herself as a woman in, in politics. The late senator herself raised in a well-heeled Jewish family from a uh, posher part of the town, just had a knack for showing she cared about her fellow San Franciscans, no matter their background, Chacon said. I always think of her as a mayor, still, she said. I have just these fond memories of her always staying true to San Francisco in her heart. After a three-decade career as the first woman to represent California in the U.S. Senate, Feinstein was the rare politician to transcend local prominence and carve out a truly national profile in Washington. She helped shape federal policy by the in the nation's highest halls of power and commanded respect there before women were routinely afforded it. Since her death, those national bona fides have been cited in remembrances coast to coast. But in Feinstein's hometown, San Franciscans like Chacon were reflecting just how much on her local influence as they were her time in Washington. City residents remembered Feinstein not as a far-flung power broker, but for her efforts to attend their local events, fill potholes, save public transportation routes, respond to letters they wrote to her, and speak out against bigotry 
and injustice in their, in their neighborhoods. Some also remembered her in a, a less positive but no less vocal light, including with her for a frosty relationship with, the, with San Francisco labor groups. Gia Daniela Katz, co-chair of the Raoul Wallenberg Jewish Democratic Club, said Feinstein's death brought to mind a big fight in the night, late 1970s when a Nazi bookstore opened in the Sunset District. The store's opening sparked violent clashes between two ne between neo-Nazis and Jews and led to the desecration of a synagogue. Afterward, community members organized and built a Holocaust education center and monument to Nazi victims, Daniela Katz said, and Feinstein, then mayor, showed up to speak movingly at the dedication. It was the sort of commitment she would continue to show long after she left her post in the city government and moved on to the Senate, uh, Daniela Katz said. Some people who leave and go on to national office, you don't get a sense they're still active in their local community. But with Feinstein, you did, she said. This was her city. And so she said, uh, so she paid attention and she still got it, got, and she still got in there trying to push things one way or another. Even at the height of her career in Washington, Feinstein kept one eye on the state of San Francisco. To the amusement and exasperation of her successors at City Hall, whom she would call about potholes, broken curb cuts, and any number of other small complaints and problems. One staffer to former Mayor Ed Lee would only speak to the Times only on condition of anonymity so soon after Feinstein's death, said Lee's office used to keep track of her travel schedule from Washington to San Francisco International Airport. Lee's team knew her route from SFO to her house, the staffer said, and paid particular attention to having that path through the city extra clean. Peter Ragone, who served as then-Mayor Gavin Newsom's press secretary, said every mayor who succeeded Feinstein grew accustomed to such calls, which came regularly and especially after she'd been driving around the city. Gavin was driving Larkin Street, and I saw some trash, Ragone recalled, saying, uh, called, recalled her saying during one such conversation, you need to fix that. To Ragone and others, Feinstein's ongoing interest in the minute lay Minute uh, of city government, governance was a measure of how much she cared about her hometown and its residents. Others felt they, that care in, in other ways, too. On Friday afternoon, friends David Clark, 75, Charles O'Rourke, 76, and Gilbert Engelman, 87, sat sharing drinks at the Castro neighborhood's long-standing gay bar, Twin Peaks Tavern. Engelman, who has lived in San Francisco since 1970, recalled Feinstein courting support in the gay community nearly half a century ago, often with her young daughter Catherine in town. She'd walk around trying to get people to vote for her. I liked her, he said. She got the things done, said O'Rourke, a San Francisco native who praised Feinstein for helping save the city's streetcars. If they'd have gotten rid of them, I'd have been furious. Feinstein ruffled feathers in the gay community in the 1980s when she closed the city's bathhouses amid the spread of AIDS. O'Rourke said he agreed with the decision. Engelman said he disagreed, but both men said they understood and never doubted that Feinstein cared about what happened to the gay community, which couldn't be said for all politicians back then. Today, the men said, they think of Feinstein as one of many important allies in the gay rights movement whom San Francisco can call its own. She did as good for a straight woman as she could do, Engelman said with a smile. Mawuli 
Tugbenio, co-chair of the Alice B. Toklas Democratic Club, said Feinstein is synonymous with San Francisco and also remembered, remembered her as an LGBTQ plus ally. We definitely appreciate the fights that she fought, the 41-year-old Tugbenio said. We need allies, and she was one of the earliest allies and advocates we had. We wouldn't be where we are today without her. Feinstein, a San Francisco native, was born in 1933 and graduated from Stanford University in 1955. By the time she won her first political race for a seat on the Board of Supervisors in 1969, she had married twice and had daughter Catherine. She emerged onto the national stage when, in 1978, she was elevated from board president to mayor when then-Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk were assassinated at City Hall. In 1980, Feinstein married her third husband, Richard Bloom, an investor with an equity management firm who died last year. Feinstein was mayor until 1988, ran unsuccessfully for California governor in 1990, and won her Senate seat, which she never gave up, in 1992. She and Bloom lived a wealthy and well-appointed lifestyle, traveling between their homes, including San Francisco and Washington, on a private jet. Although Feinstein was often away from San Francisco, her presence never fully faded. Rabbi Jonathan Singer of Congregation Emmanuel said he knew Feinstein, whom he called a proud member of the congregation for decades. Rabbi uh, uh, Feinstein often spent the autumn high holidays in the Gold Dome Byzantine Revival Synagogue, one of the oldest in California and among the largest in the U.S., usually sitting three rows back from the front, Singer said. It was always so moving for us to see this amazing, courageous leader in our congregation, Singer said. She was always generous and warm with her connection to people. <clears throat> the rabbi said he liked to believe that some of Feinstein's clear-eyedness when it came to being able to stand up to injustice came from her background in the values of Jewish life. At Diane Feinstein Elementary School in the city's Sunset District, renamed for the senator in 2006, Principal Salwa Zaki said flags were lowered at half-staff Friday as teachers held a moment of silence and shared memories of the lawmaker during a school-wide community circle. Over the years, Feinstein had not only lent her name to the school, but also provided generous donations to support the library, technology, social, emotional learning, and much more, Zaki said. During her school visits, she especially loved reading to students. Others felt Feinstein's lingering presence in other ways. Nato Green, a comedian and collective bargaining or coordinator for at SIEU Local 1021, who grew up in San Francisco, said he remembers Feinstein for her key role in decimating the city's once-powerful restaurant union and her frosty relationship with workers. In 2009, he said union officials took what he estimated to be a thousand nurses to picket outside Feinstein's mansion on the famous Lion Street steps in the uh, Presidio. It was this incredible visual of nurses in red pouring down the steps, but no one was home and she didn't care. To Green and others, the late senator was emblematic of a certain kind of San Francisco politics, liberal by any national standard, but conservative on matters of land use, law and order, and what level of cruelty should be conflicted on the unhoused, Green said. Feinstein represented San Francisco's version of our homegrown local liberal aristocracy, he said, who care about civility, 
uh, more than they care about accomplishing anything. Uh, during the during Feinstein's tenure as a politician, San Francisco's reputation has weathered ups and downs, spotlighted as a gem of urban culture and castigated as a wasteland of crime, homelessness, and debauchery. Feinstein, always prim and proper, at times seemed an odd icon of the liberal city. She fought for gay rights and gun control, but she broke ranks with, break, broke ranks with the left wing of the Democratic Party on a regular basis and took some political positions that rankled her progressive constituency. Toward the end of her life, calls for her to give up her seat were as much rooted in the notion that she no longer represented the values of liberal California as they were in concerns about her advancing frailty and, particularly during illnesses in the last year, her inability to, to be in Washington for crucial votes. Feinstein never bowed to that pressure, but she also never, never gave up on San Francisco. At a news conference at City Hall on Friday morning, Mayor London Breed said with a smile that she, too, had been, call, been on receiving, receiving end of calls from Feinstein, which were always about the city, always about what I needed to do in a very loving way. She said Feinstein still believed in San Francisco as an extraordinary place, despite unfair, unjust criticism of the city on the national stage. She really is a part of the fabric of San Francisco, so what went through my head is how important it is that we do justice to her legacy, how important it is that we show respect to the people who love her so much, Breed said. Diana Van Dever, 65, of San Francisco, showed up to sign the condolence book for Feinstein, wearing multiple Feinstein campaign pins from her in the 1990s on her shirt and an F. Trump pin on her hat. Originally from the Central Valley, Van Dever said she is a longtime member of the League of Women Voters who worked in a can-making factory in jobs once reserved for men, but which women leaders like Feinstein helped open up for her. Feinstein could have lived a privileged, easy life, but she had moxie and instead chose to work in politics to advocate for women who were nowhere near her tax bracket and needed the help, said Vanderveer, who remembers Feinstein showing up to league protests pushing a baby carriage. She was prim and proper, and you knew she was going to get somewhere, and she asked us all what was important for females then, and she tried to her best and did those things that matter matter to people in my stature, not only in hers, you know, coming out of Stanford and the family she's from, Vandiver said. We without child care, we without equal pay, she helped us rise up as females. For Chacon, Feinstein's efforts to help women, particularly in San Francisco, are also what stuck out as she penned her final message to the late senator. As a little girl, I met you and you inspired me to grow to be a strong woman in my community, she wrote. You paved the way for us as women leaders. You will always be remembered as such for myself and my family of native San Franciscans. And that was Heart of Feinstein's Legacy Will Always Be San Francisco by Kevin Rector, Sonia Sharp, and Benjamin Oreskes from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 1st, 2023. And here is another one. Not a tribute article. This is from the same Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 1st, 2023. Feinstein's cause of death has not been disclosed. The senator struggled with evident health problems, but doctors doubt it was dementia by Corinne Pertil. No cause of death has been disclosed for Diane Feinstein, the longtime California senator who struggled with evident health problems, 
uh, in her final years before her death Friday. She was absent from the U.S. Senate for nearly three months earlier this year while recovering from a case of shingles that led to encephalitis, a rare complication that causes inflammation and swelling in the brain. She was briefly hospitalized in August after falling at her home and was often seen in a wheelchair in public. Indications that Feinstein 90 was struggling with memory problems have persisted for years, even before the acknowledgement they acknowledged health crises in the last year of her life. Several of Feinstein's colleagues and former staffers confided to reporters that she was often unable to recognize long-term colleagues and repeated herself frequently. In July, she appeared confused during a Senate Appropriations Committee vote and began to read a prepared statement before the committee chair prompted her to just say I. Feinstein maintained that she was cognitively fit to continue her fifth full term, and neither her office nor her family has ever confirmed if she had any neurological condition. Even if the senator's apparent memory lapses were the result of dementia, the disease would almost certainly have not been her cause of death, doctors said Friday. In general order, older adults often have a confluence of several different medical problems, and to say which one caused the death can be very difficult, said Dr. Laura Mosquita, a professor of geriatrics and family medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. We don't need to look for a simple answer to an, actual, uh, to an actually complicated question. The most common cause of dementia is Alzheimer's disease, a progressive and incurable condition. Alzheimer's can be a direct cause of death in its latest stages when the disease begins to damage parts of the brain that control essential biological functions such as breathing and swallowing. A common cause of death for people with late-stage Alzheimer's is aspiration, aspiration pneumonia, an infection in the lungs triggered by food or other foreign substance that goes down the windpipe instead of the esophagus. This becomes a bigger risk as the muscles that control swallowing and chewing weaken in the late stages of the disease. By then, it is no longer possible for patients to keep up even a semblance of their previous activities. You would typically not see someone functioning, walking, talking. Usually, people are bedridden at that point, said Dr. Mark Mapstone, a neuropsychologist at UC Irvine. <clears throat> Doctors were quick to note that without knowing Feinstein's health history, it was impossible to know for certain whether she suffered from any neurological condition. Yet even though her appearance in the Senate in her final years was a shock to those familiar with her during her long career, she was not as ill as a person with advanced Alzheimer's. Diane Feinstein was looking pretty frail and seemed a little confused, sometimes in public appearances, said Dr. Michael Weiner of UC San Francisco, the principal investigator of the Alzheimer's Disease Neuro, 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 Neuroimaging Initiative. Yet if she did have dementia, he said, she was definitely not in an advanced stage. It wasn't even clear if you could say she was in a moderate stage. You can only judge from these outside appearances. That was Feinstein's cause of death has not been disclosed by Corinne Pertel from the, the uh, Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 1st, 2023. Okay, here's one more from the same uh, Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 1st, 2023. Feinstein's decline, death, revived term limit debate by Quasi Giampi Asidu, Washington. 
Senator Dianne Feinstein's death while in office has reignited a discussion about congressional term limits and an ongoing unforgettable conversation about the age of elected public officials. Feinstein, who at 90 was the oldest serving U.S. senator, was in her fifth full term. First elected to the Senate in 1992, she had defied calls for her resignation in recent years as she faced health complications. However, in February, she announced she would not seek re-election next year to serve beyond January 2025 when her term was to end. A poll released last month by the Pew Research Center found that there was overwhelming public support for congressional term limits, with 87% of those surveyed in favor. The polling also found widespread support among adults for imposing age limits on elected politicians in Washington, 79%, and for Supreme Court justices, 74%. Congressional term limits have garnered support among Republicans in Congress, including members of the hard-right House Freedom Caucus, who demanded a vote on the issue as part of their deal to support Kevin McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield, during his difficult run for the speakership. But congressional Democrats have been lukewarm on the idea, with several to give, uh, octogenarians in their party, including President Biden and former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont Independent, who caucuses with Democrats, is 82. In January, Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, reintroduced a bill that would amend the Constitution and cap senators at two six-year terms and House members at three two-year terms. The Founding Fathers envisioned a government of citizen legislators who would serve for a few years and return home, not a government run by a small group of special interests and lifelong permanently entrenched politicians who prey upon the brokenness of Washington to govern in a matter that is totally unaccountable to the American people, Cruz said earlier this year. He is running for a third term in 2024. Calls for congressional term limits heightened following Feinstein's lengthy absence from Capitol Hill earlier this year as she recovered from a shingles infection. The debate was revived when Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, who's 81, appeared to freeze and was unable to talk during two news conferences this summer. Casey Burgott, Legislative Affairs Program Director at George Washington University, said term limits have public support because Congress is incredibly unpopular and doesn't fulfill a lot of its basic obligations. However, Burgott said, instituting term limits would append the rights of voters. Feinstein won an election four years ago when, obviously, her age was well known, Burgott said. The voters saw her uh, compared to the alternatives and chose her to continue her career. To institute draconian measures such as term limits that kick out good politicians, bad politicians, all at the same pace takes away the fundamental right for voters to choose who they want to represent them. We have presidential term limits because we realize that putting too much power in one person's hand for a long period of time is not a good thing. And the people agree that the same thing should apply to Congress, said Scott Tillman, National Field Director of U.S. Term Limits, an organization that advocates for caps in state legislatures and on the federal level. In 1995, U.S. Term Limits was part of a, was party to a Supreme Court case that barred states from imposing term limits or, or congressional qualifications in addition to those enumerated in the Constitution. In a 5-4 majority opinion, Justice John Paul Stevens said, said that such a state-imposed restriction is contrary to the fundamental principle of our representative democracy embodied in the Constitution that the people should choose whom they please to govern them. 
Burgat said term limits would lead to a revolving door of lawmakers and a loss of institutional knowledge about federal policymaking that comes with experience in Congress. If that experience is not in-house, then you go find it in out of the house. And in politics, that means special interest groups, and that means lobbyists, he says. The difference would increase to special interest groups and an executive branch who have longer-serving bureaucrats who, by the way, are unelected. That was Feinstein's Decline, Death, Revive, Term Limit Debate by Kwasi Giampi Asidu from the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 1st, 2023. All right, let's uh, take leave of that for now. And let's move on to something else. This is kind of an Israeli story from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, September 28, 2023. The U.S. will soon allow Israeli travelers in the country without visas by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. The United States has agreed to admit Israel into the elite category of countries whose citizens can travel to the U.S. without visas, despite questions over whether Israel meets a core U.S. requirement for the special status, that Israel allow Palestinian Americans to travel freely in its territory. U.S. officials announced the decision Wednesday to grant Israel admission to the visa waiver program, to which 40 mostly Western countries belong. The designation of Israel into the Visa Waiver Program is an important recognition of our shared security interests and the close co uh, cooperation between our two countries, Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro M. Mayorka said in a joint statement with Secretary of State Antony J. Blinken. The new designation will enhance freedom of movement for U.S. citizens, including those living in the Palestinian territories or traveling to and from them, Blinken said. The decision comes after a two-month test period in which Israel was to prove its eligibility by eliminating long-standing restrictions on Palestinian Americans who attempt to travel in Israel and the Palestinian territories of the West Bank and Gaza Strip. If traveling to the West Bank from abroad, they have generally not been allowed to transit through the only international airport in the area near Tel Aviv, but must instead go overland from neighboring Jordan. And travel within Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza is complicated for Palestinian Americans, as for most Palestinians, by Israeli military checkpoints that often block their passage. But Biden administration officials said they believed the requirements for easing travel restrictions to the U.S. had been met. The requirements include confirmation that a country issues secure travel documents and extends visa-free privileges to all U.S. citizens without regard to national origin, religion, or ethnicity, Mallorca's and Blinken said in the statement. They add the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, however, filed a lawsuit Tuesday against the Department of Homeland Security, alleging that Israel had failed to meet the program's visa waiver requirements. Anecdotally, a number of Palestinian Americans have reported the same harassment and prolonged questioning at Israeli military checkpoints or border crossings that have gone on for years. Others, though, have said travel was easier. Americans for Peace Now, a U.S.-based progressive organization that focuses on Israel, said Wednesday that while it supports including the country in the no-visa program, entry now was premature. We realize that Israel has gone a long way toward crossing the threshold that would deem it as complying with the program's requirements 
and support those steps to, it has taken, the organization said in the statement, but it has not crossed the threshold. It is clear that important obstacles which have been uh, standing in the way of establishing U.S.-Israeli reci reciprocity have not yet been lifted. The State Department, working with the Homeland Security Department, said it set up a system to monitor how tens of thousands of Palestinian Americans were being treated by Israel in their efforts to transit by inviting their comments. The U.S. is apparently allowing Israel to make some exception for Palestinian Americans from the volatile Gaza Strip, which critics say undermines the concept of reciprocity. A State Department spokesman said Gaza affords an exception because it is controlled by a foreign terrorist organization. He was apparently referring to Hamas, which is regarded as a terrorist group by Israel and the U.S. The no-visa travel for Israelis will go into effect November 30, U.S. officials said. That was the U.S. will soon allow Israeli travelers into the country without visas, by Tracy Wilkinson, from the Nation's section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, September 28, 2023. Here's some more international news from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 4, 2023. Overhaul begins on Hitler birthplace. The house in Austria will become a police station, so neo-Nazis won't want to visit it, from the Associated Press. Branau am in Austria. Work started Monday on turning the house in Austria, where Adolf Hitler was born in 1889, into a police station, a project meant to make it unattractive as a site of pilgrimage for people who glorify the genocidal Nazi dictator. The decision on the future of the building in Braunau am Inn, a town on Austria's border with Germany, was made in late 2019. Plans call for renovating it as a police station, the district police headquarters, and a security academy branch where police officers will get human rights training. On Monday, workers put up fencing and started taking measures for the construction work. The police are expected to move into the premises in early 2026. A years-long back and forth over the ownership of the house preceded the overhaul project. The question was resolved in 2017 when Austria's high court ruled that the government was within its rights to expropriate the building after its owner refused to sell it. A suggestion that it might be demolished was dropped. The building had been rented by Austria's interior minister since 1972 to prevent its misuse and was, sublet to, and was sublet to various charitable organizations. It stood empty after a care center for adults with disabilities moved out in 2011. A memorial stone is to remain in place outside the house with the inscription for freedom, democracy, and liberty, never again fascism. Millions of dead remind us. The Austrian government argues that having the police as the guardians of civil liberties move in this uh, move in is the best use for the building, but there has been criticism of the plan. Historian Florian Kotanko complained that there is a total lack of historical contextualization. He argued that the Interior Ministry's intention of removing the building's recognition factor by remodeling is impossible to accomplish. That was Overhaul Begins on Hitler Birthplace from the Associated Press out of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 4, 2023. Alright, here's a little entertainment news from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 1st, 2023. 
Revising the Brooklyn and the Novels of His Youth by Lauren LeBlanc. Though the novelist and Pomona College professor Jonathan Lethem has lived in Southern California for more than a dozen years, the Brooklyn neighborhood of Borum Hill still looms large. It's been exactly 20 years since Lethem published The Fortress of Solitude, a tribute to the Brooklyn of his youth. The landscape has changed considerably. Steely grit and urban decay have given way to skyscrapers and endless bistros. But this transformation was already underway, well underway, in 2003 when Lethem published his story of a complicated interracial friendship between two boys who grew up in the pre-gentrified 70s. What more can be said about it now? According to the author of Motherless Brooklyn, a lot. Lethem's latest book, Brooklyn Crime Novel, explores familiar territory from a new point of view in a new style to him. It unfolds through passages ranging in length from less than a page to a dozen, each labeled and dated. And it leaps between decades and then into liminal spaces that exist across time to cast a light on forgotten exchanges and actions. This kaleidoscopic, fragmentary quality is no lark. It is essential to Lethem's project. Abandoning a central hero allows the streets to speak for themselves, with the powerful voice of an omniscient boy of Dean Street serving as interlocutor and guide. This is not to say a Brooklyn crime novel is devoid of characters. Lethem rounds out the book with figures such as C., a young black boy circa 1970s who navigates smoothly among the various kids of the neighborhood regardless of race or background, and the brazen head wheeze, a grizzled barfly and neighborhood institution who takes pleasure in heckling the yuppie arrivistees 40 years later. Overwhelmingly, though, let them seize the history of the area. The culmination of neglect followed by unchecked gentrification not through the words of its native children, but through their bodies. They came into consciousness in a distinct time and place, he writes. Later, they'd find evidence deep inside their bodies of how they'd been formed by certain arguments that time and place and place was having about itself. There, these are bodies inscribed by crimes. Let them, uh, let them seek to use what we know, what we know to know more than we know. At first glance, the book's stark title, coupled with Lethem's f- uh, frequent play with mystery tropes, signals that this is a genre novel. It is definitely not, but the question of crime remains. Dispensing with plot and narrative conventions, Lethem establishes a concrete language to catalog the sweeping range of crimes, or the dance as he sometimes refers to them, offenses ranging from muggings, kidnapping, and assault, to display the displacement of working-class residents that accumulate to create a history of Borum Hill. This accumulation reaches a climax when the wheeze confronts a novelist, who we assume has let them, with the retort, you gentrified gentrification. No criticism could be more cutting. As personal story as Fortress was, it was also a fabrication. All these years later, Lethem wants to measure the cost and burden of microaggressions and capital offenses. Realizing one novel could never embody the beauty and tragedy of his home, Lethem uses this one to uncover the slipperiness of the task. Some things, like gentrification or a trauma, can be so simply placed in time, he writes. They exasperate before and after. They dwell instead of a, instead, instead of a, in a null space, along between. 
distrust anyone who tries to pin them to the pages of a book. Look instead for what a small number of people remember, even if they avert their eyes when passing on the sidewalk. The work of uncovering the full truth becomes a life sentence. It's a brutal question to ask yourself. Was writing a book about your childhood friends at, and home turf an act of betrayal? Maybe it was if not everyone managed to survive to tell their stories. Complicating Lethem's task is, the, is that the Borum Hill was contrived in the first place, invented in the 1960s to distinguish its fading brownstones from the surrounding house projects. Prepping the book with critical observations, the narrator notes, generalizations then may betray the spirit of our inquiry here. Let's lay off the romantic flourishes, the rhetoric of memory. This is no sugar-coated stroll down memory lane. So yes, he has internalized the hardest knock on the Fortress of Solitude, that for all its sharpness and grit, it is ultimately sentimental and thus incomplete. Here, let them let the ragged edges remain visible. The story's texture and pacing echoes his message. Brooklyn crime novel is also a product of the 20 years that have passed since Fortress, not only in the borough, but also in, in, fic but also in fiction. In the aftermath of autofiction, <clears throat> auto readers are more comfortable with experimental form and granular, knotted truths. When Fortress came out, Lethem was 39, not yet a decade into his career as a novelist. At 59, he is a MacArthur-anointed genius and Pomona's Roy Edward Disney professor of creative writing. What he has chosen to do now isn't to capture the moment or stand out in a crowded market, but to write the book that has nagged at him. He's walking these familiar streets to see beyond the gows of memory in order to reconcile feelings with facts. In a recent essay in The New Yorker, Lethem writes about another writer's attempt to analyze the phenomenon of Borum Hill. Back in 1977, Jervis Anderson's gift was to portray the brownstoners as I recall them, people trying and largely failing to grasp their place in history in real time. You and I may be doing the same now. While Fortress is imbued with longing, Brooklyn crime novel surveys the deep fissures that surface when the pull of home is stronger than nostalgia. He sees himself as an unwilling detective, a designated rememberer. Ultimately, his is a pursuit with no definite answers, in which the good guys and bad guys sometimes switch roles due to forces beyond their control. What more is there to say about Brooklyn? Lethem's revisionist project ultimately unsays as much as it says. Certain matters fall into wells of silence without necess necessarily being lies, he writes. The street may seem to swallow knowledge about itself to render certain things unsayable. But the novel is also an endless declaration of love. Every neighborhood deserves such a discursive portrait, such ruthless devotion, and such an audacious book that was revising the Brooklyn and the novels of his youth by Lauren LeBlanc from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 1st, 2023. LeBlanc is a writer and board member of the National Book Critics Circle. Her substack is Lauren LeBlanc at substack.com. All right, and now let's turn to some articles from the Jewish Journal for September 22nd to the 28th, 2023, 
we go to Rosner's Domain from Israel. This is called A War at 50 by Shemuel Rosner. 50 years have passed, but in Israel, it is still impossible to disentangle the tremble and awe of Yom Kippur from the trauma of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And after 50 years, three issues concerning the war are still under debate, even though most facts about the war are now known. Was it possible to prevent a war? Why was Israel's intelligence blind to the eminence of war? Did Israel win or lose the war? The first debate concerns the statements mainly Prime Minister Golda Meir. At its core, it is an assumption or an assertion that a courageous acceptance of a peace offer would have prevented the war. This is a claim that is common among scholars and pundits with a distinct political position. That is to say, it is common on the left. The same people who always say that Israel doesn't really seek peace argue that in 1972, Israel had an opening to prevent the war, had it responded more positively to exploratory messages from Egypt via the U.S. The second debate concerns the insistence of Israel's military intelligence that Egypt would not dare start a war. Many secondary questions that war buffs tend to deliberate uh, branch off from this question. Was Egyptian insider Ashraf Marwan a spy or a double agent? Why weren't certain special technological devices activated? The third debate concerns the IDF and its response to the surprise attack. Did it excel or falter? Here, too, many secondary questions obscure the main issue. Questions about the Bar-Lev line of defense in Sinai, about the manning or of the fortifications on the Suez Canal, about the politicking of generals, about the initial failure of the Air Force to make a difference. In the last 20 years, and especially this year, a flood of books and documentaries rehash the drama of the war. There is nothing like it in the history of Israel. There have not been as many books written about the War of Independence, Israel's most important war. There is nothing similar dealing with the Six-Day War, the most brilliant uh, victory. There is no such deliberation about the First Lebanon War, which began a 20-year saga. Why? Good question. It's not the number of casualties, because more Israelis were killed during the War of Independence. It's not the long-term consequences, because the Six-Day War is no less consequential. This is not the folly of statesmen, if we suppose there was folly, because the public, the public debate on Lebanon was no less difficult. In one of the new books, Recovery, Professor Yuri Bar-Yosef effectively deals with an important controversy concerning the war. Bar-Yosef has written several books about the war. Is this one his last? I had a feeling that it is. So I called, and he confirmed it. This is the last one. The 50th anniversary will probably be the last year of the flood of 1973 documentation. War veterans have reached the age of writing books, wrote what they wanted to write, and probably exhausted their energy. The next generation of books will be written by younger people who don't remember the war. Bar Yosef, 24 when the war erupted, wrote a book that's unique and in a surprising way. He does not subscribe to the common narrative that the war was some kind of predetermined affair. What is this narrative? Put simply, it is a story about a euphoric post-1967 Israel that is punished for its sense of hubris. Israel's sin was pride. Its purgatory was war. There was a long tradition of tales about hubris and, the, and fall in every mythology, myth, mythology of every people. 
There are deep psychological reasons for clinging to such narrative. Strangely, there is something comforting about it. The cruelty of reality is explained away by provincial necessity. Humans have a need to assume that the world is not random and capricious. They have a need to assume cause and effect. Bar Yosef's book is provocative because it, it comes close to eliminating the cause. In his tale, the war is not a story of sin and punishment. It is a collection of almost unrelated small negligence, triviality that leads to catastrophe. What is the lesson? Maybe do your job. Not much of a lesson for a nation seeking an answer grand enough to answer for a drama of a nightmare's proportion. And yet there it is. That's the argument. In Yom Kippur, we tremble and immerse feeling purified. But the Yom Kippur War has no such spirituality, spiritual quality. It was brutal and tragic, that's all. That was a word 50 by Shemuel Rosner. Here's, some, here's another thing, something I wrote in Hebrew, also by Shemuel Rosner. I keep warning that passing a permanent draft exemption for Haridas could lead to dramatic outcome. The legitimacy of draft evasion a likely result of total draft exemption is the most dangerous thing that can happen to the IDF because the state does not have the ability to recruit masses by force. Israel is not built for this. Israel society is not built for this. The military, Israeli, Israel society is not built for this. The military is not built for this. Legitimacy of draft evasion could lead to an increase in the rate of those who do not enlist, which will lead to more legitimacy for evasion which will lead to another increase, and the model of the people's military will soon collapse. That's something I wrote in Hebrew. This is called A Week's Numbers. This is before, now, before Yom Kippur. Here's what Jewish Israelis told us they were personally praying for if and when they pray. Jewish Israelis prayed to help, sick people, to help heal sick people, 65%, for Israel to win a war, 44%, to improve a financial situation, 45%. That's a week's numbers. This is a reader's response. Jacob Rush asked, Can you tell me why Bibi wanted to meet with Elon Musk? My answer, he is truly interested in AI and its meaning. That's a reader's response. And those are all by Shmuel Rosner from Rosner's Domain from Israel. Shmuel Rosner is senior political editor. For more analysis of Israeli and international politics, visit Rosner's Domain at jewishjournal.com slash Rosner's Domain. And I read this article with the knowledge that uh, during this uh, holiday of Simchat Torah in Israel, Hamas launched rockets against Israel, killing 40 people. And uh, Israel is going is scheduled to retaliate. That's all I know at this point. We will bring you more information about it as, as soon as it is available to us. All right, here's something from Blog Bites from our online contributors. And this is called There Will Be Blood Clotting by Boaz Hepner. He doesn't have hemophilia. It was a lab error. And we truly feel like a miracle has happened. And although Addie is still sick as a dog right now, we both couldn't be happier. Let me tell you about the emotional roller coaster that has encompassed the first month of our son's life. Day zero. He's born. They draw his blood to check his factor eight levels because Addie has a deficiency. And although we don't think it's hereditary, we just don't know. Day one and two. The lab doesn't run the test on weekends. We should find out tomorrow. Day three. We get a phone call from the NICU that the results have arrived. And unfortunately, yes, he has hemophilia. 
The test shows extremely low factor 8 levels. We are devastated and wait for the pediatric hematologist to arrive. Dr. Baca arrives and we are immediately impressed by her knowledge and her wonderful bedside manner. She is sitting in Addie's hospital room talking to us for an, a full hour and immediately contacts the director of pediatric urology to help accommodate our planning for the bris. Dr. Friedman comes that very evening and we are equally impressed by him. Uh, Dr. Baca explains to us that the testing can only show that the levels are under 3%, but it is crucial to do follow-up chromogenic testing that takes a week and requires a send-out to Quest Diagnostics. This will tell us its precise levels to the nearest decimal, which is highly relevant. Day 6. They draw the chromogenic test in the NICU and send us home with a plan for him to be back for the bris in two days. It has since had to be done safely at the hospital. My brother Zach, a mohel, cannot fly in to perform the bris since he does not have privileges at Cedars. Day 8. Bris is at the NICU, done beautifully with friend and chaplain Rabbi Weiner, my own mohel from 1979, Rabbi Lebovics, and each of our dads. Plus, a bunch of very interested uh, student nurses were allowed to observe and film it for us. Factor 8 fusion is given prophylactically uh, just beforehand. He is named Liam Ross Hefner, and we pivot due to his diagnosis, and his Hebrew name changes from Liam to Lev, meaning heart. Day 10. No bleeding problems, and a second factor 8 infusion is given to play it safe before sending us home. Day 15. Dr. Baca calls us extremely apologetically for saying that the chromogenic test came back normal, 68% or so, which makes no sense at all. So they are going to run it again with a frozen sample the lab still has. Supposedly, it should always have the same results. So it, be, so it, be, it being old and frozen shouldn't be relevant. Little to no optimism, but praying the frozen sample will be consistent and provide a glimmer of hope. Day 18. The frozen sample returns, and this time, it's about 30%. This continues to baffle everyone, as it doesn't match anything else. Let's forget that sample. We all decide and get a fresh one. This even further points to the chromogenic test being a screw-up, so don't get false hope. Little to no optimism. Day 19. He gets redrawn, but Dr. Baca smartly adds on a PTT level, which is a clotting level that is affected by factor 8. She calls us that day and tells us the PTT is normal, and she and her team are starting to wonder if the first test was the incorrect one, but not to get our hopes up yet. Extremely cautious optimism. Day 26. The results of the second chromogenic test are in, and it's high, but it doesn't match any of the other numbers and they want to see another lab run the test. They send us to Children's Hospital because St. John's also uses Quest. Cautious optimism, but when I tell Addie the original diagnosis might have been an error, she doesn't want to go there in her mind and needs to mourn the diagnosis all over again. As I said, cautious optimism. Day 27. It gets redrawn at CHLA. It takes three attempts and two people, but it gets done. At the same time, Dr. Baca's team has done extensive research into the frozen sample given, giving different results. And good news, it turns out that factor 8 samples DO degrade over time. 
so it actually makes more sense now that the frozen sample went down when they rechecked it, gaining optimism, but still very cautiously. Day 34. CHLA gives Cedars the results that factor 7 is normal. Wait a minute, they ordered factor 8, not 7. Actually, our factor 8 machine is currently broken down, and we're not sure when it will be fixed. But don't worry, the sample is stable for uh, for a year, so we can run it accurately any time. Hmm, that's what we just finished determining uh, by the frozen sample. It's been a week, so just throw the test away. We'll need another new lab draw. Same level of optimism, but increased frustration. Day 35. Dr. Baca's office calls CHLA to throw out that week-old sample, but they interject. We fix the machine, and the results are 175%. What? Dr. Baca then explained that although we know the sample can degrade over time, that means the numbers should go down, not up. So this is when she and her team finally feel confident that his initial diagnosis and test was wrong. A simple lab error. They completely understand our need for one test. Just one test not to go awry and to match another test. The order of final factor 8 test at Cedars to get the next day. We breathe a huge sigh of relief and finally tell Addie's parents and my mother, leaving out my father to avoid him from sending out a poem to his entire address book about this not yet fully resolved trauma. Day 36. They warn us not to come in today because their factory 8 machine went down and is being fixed. Day 37, Friday. They call and confirm the machine is up and running. Everyone in the lab and the clinic is expecting us and knows the importance of getting this right. We arrive and everyone is lovely and the nurse hand delivers the sample to the lab. She then emails us personally to tell us that it was dropped off safely and should result in four hours. Day 37, 3.08 p.m. We get a phone call from Dr. Baca. I have some great news. Are you and Addie sitting down? Liam doesn't have hemophilia. He never did. It was an initial lab error. Who knows how it happened, but it happened. And we feel like something just occurred that never happens in life. A true miracle, undoing something that could otherwise never be cured, just managed. We feel like we were just given the gift of a do-over and are immensely excited for this miracle. That was There Will Be Blood Clotting by Boas Hepner from Blog Bites from our online contributors. Boas Hepner works as a registered nurse in St. John's Health Center and provides health education to the community at large. He grew up in L.A. Pico Robertson and lives here with his wife Addie, daughter Natalia, and son Liam. He helped clean up the neighborhood by adding the dozens of trash cans that can still be seen from Roxbury to La Cienega. He can be found with his family enjoying his passions, his multitude of friends, movies, poker, and traveling. All right, now we go on to this one from the Sephardic Spice Girls. This is called Of Peace and Pasta by Sharon Gompertz and Rachel Mquiz Chef. As a mother of three, I have boiled hundreds of pots of pasta. Spaghetti with meatballs, rigatoni with olive oil, macaroni and cheese with a crispy topping, packaged wacky mac, spirals with butter, bow ties with marinara sauce. The list is endless. Pasta is always an easy-to-go-to dish for busy days and nights, a comfort food which is sure to please the whole family. But as a child growing up in a Moroccan kitchen, 
I have a very different memory of pasta as comfort food. My memories are of my mother making dough and feeding it through a pasta machine clamping to the kitchen table. She would crank the handle round and round and thin noodles would shoot out. She would spread the noodles all over the counters so that they could dry out. Noodles, noodles everywhere. Meanwhile, in a large pot on the stove, a chicken was boiling in a broth flavored with saffron and onion. The delicious aroma filled the air. This is one of my only truly vivid memories from my childhood in Morocco. Often I think I remember something, but it's only because I have seen a photo. I have carried this memory with me all these years. If you are Spanish Moroccan, like my family, you call this noodle dish letria. If you are French Moroccan, you call it lentria. Whatever you call it, this dish of thin fresh egg noodles cooked in a chicken broth with saffron is perfectly savory and satisfying. Latria is a special side dish, not a soup eaten on holidays. It is especially customary to eat latria as part of the meal before the fast of Yom Kippur. It is typically served with the chicken that is used to make the broth or with roast chicken. In America, my mother started using the store-bought thin egg noodles for convenience, but she always patiently boiled a homemade chicken broth. I'm a little ashamed to admit that occasionally, when pinched for time, I have taken convenience to the next level by using store-bought chicken broth or chicken consomme powder. I just add turmeric and saffron to give it that special homemade flavor, but there's nothing better than a homemade chicken broth. Latria is one of the dishes that my mother made that is fondly remembered by my children and my nieces and nephews. Whenever I prepare Latria, everyone is very excited. Of course, I could never replicate the perfection of my mother's noodles. She would go so go as far as to steam the noodles in a cocosia, a double boiler used for a couscous. She would add the chicken broth one ladle at a time to make sure there would be just the right amount of liquid and that the noodles wouldn't be too dry or too sticky. Over the years, I've had a few fails and, uh, and I've tossed away some pots of noodles. So it is important to take your time and not to rush through the steps. This noodle dish is satisfying and easy on the stomach, just perfect for an easy, comfortable past. Rachel A couple of weeks ago, my daughter Alexandra called me from the Golden Heights. She and the other girls in her B'nai Akiva seminary run a teal trip to the north. Mommy, they told us that such a sad story about an officer called Yoab in the Yom Kippur War. He was the commander of a unit stuck in a bunker under fire from Syrian forces. He and another soldier decided to go out of the bunker to deflect to deflect the Syrians and to try to save their fellow soldiers. Yuab is killed immediately, but the Syrians don't know that they've killed him. The Syrians are focused on finding an Israeli pilot that they have seen parachuting from his fighter jet. The other soldier approaches the Syrians and holds up a finger, indicating that he is alone. As a tankist, he is wearing a jumpsuit similar to the one that uh, Israel pilot, Israeli pilots wear. The Syrians think that they've captured the pilot and they've taken him to Damascus where he is held as a prisoner of war. She continues, a few years pass by, he marries, and he has a son. Mommy, she exclaims, Yoav's father is the Sandak godfather at, uh, ben, at, Brit, at Brit Mila, and he names his son Yoav. I cry silent tears for the sadness of loss and the love and compassion that this soldier has for Yoav and his family. He has not forgotten Yoav's heroism. 
He has not forgotten Yoav's sacrifice for his brothers in arms. It's hard to believe that it has been 50 years since the Yom Kippur War. I remember it like it was yesterday. Waking up in the middle of the night to see my mother and father and my uncle Naim and Aunt Dahlia sitting on the balcony watching trucks loaded with tanks roaring past the main road. They know that the Israel Defense Force is sending reinforcements to the north and that war was imminent. The next day, I watch as my uncle Naim and uncle Eliyahu break their fast with sandwiches slathered with butter and strawberry jam. My brother Rafi and my cousins and I follow my father's brothers down the stairs of the apartment building. Silently, with heavy backpacks slung over their shoulders, they head out through the orange trees in the Pardis orchard that grows behind their home. I remember thinking how brave they are setting out to fight in the war. I remember the gray-haired men who wear bright orange vests and sit guard at every street corner, doing their part to keep the home front safe. I remember that outside every supermarket is a massive metal container to collect soap and deodorant, uh, razors and shaving cream, toothpaste and toothbrushes for the soldiers at the battlefront. I remember being so proud when my father buys some toiletries to add to the pile. I remember the high-pitched wail of the air raid sirens and running for the to the dusty Miklat bomb shelter at the home of my uncle Shlomo and Aunt Shoshana. My cousins Rafi and Ronit are the same ages as my brother and I, and we relish the novelty of eating Marie biscuits and Bisley underground. Another night, we are visiting at the home of my great aunt Rachel. My brother has fallen asleep, and he won't wake up when the air raid siren sounds its warning. In his anxiety to reach the safety of the bomb shelter, my father lifts my brother too high, and Rafi's head hits the chandelier, causing blood to gush a minor casualty in this horrible war. I remember hearing the song Lu Yehi on the radio. This anthem of the war can still bring me to tears. With much gusto, my cousins and I sing Hevenu Shalom Aleichem, this song rep that represents a yearning for peace. I remember wondering as a little girl if the Arabs share the same longing for peace. I know going into this Yom Kippur that the nature of the battle has changed. The next generation of brave young men and women still don't still don the uniforms of the IDF in order to defend all the citizens of Israel, Jew, Muslim, Christian, Druze, Black, White, Brown, and Yellow. My son Ariel served in the IDF, and my cousin's children have served and still serve. But the Jewish people cling to hope. Before the fast, my family will eat sweet, fresh, yellow dates and honey cake. We will pray that our friends and family are sealed for a year of health and happiness and that peace will prevail in Israel and the entire world. Sharon. And that was of Peace and Pasta by Sharon Gompertz and Rachel Emquies Chef from the Sephardic Spice Girls section. All right, now this is something from the food section. This is called Brave Ish's Lisa Niver, Traveling Foodie Adventures and Banana Chocolate Chip Muffins Recipe. By Deborah Eckerling. Food and travel go hand in hand. The thing most people reference when they come back from traveling is the great food experiences they've had. Travel writer and Jewish journal blogger Lisa Never, author of Brave Ish, One Breakup, Six Continents, and Feeling Fearless After 50, told the journal. One of the best things to do besides try new food is to try new food with someone. It makes a big impression because it impacts so many of your senses. 
Whether you seek out food adventures abroad, in another state, or close to home, there are plenty of options. It's not just about trying new restaurants. I took a great cooking class in Vietnam, and they actually took us walking from the restaurant to the market. They pointed out what's in season and talked about what food they were going to make. It was also it was also a great opportunity to strike up conversations with locals, as they know all the best places from restaurants to bakeries. Be curious, Nibber says. Talk to people. Nibber also recalled a cooking class she took in Tuscany. We made fresh pasta. We got to wear funny hats. I liked that part, and I tasted lots of different wines. Nibber says, there were amazing desserts. We made different sauces, and they gave us the recipes. A cooking class is a great activity for traveling, but it's also a way to travel without leaving home. For instance, a class Nibber took at Sur La Table in Los Angeles was a delicious and social experience. We got to taste everything, she said. Usually, you work in a group of four, six, or eight, and sometimes different tables in the cooking class are making different parts of the meal. Nibber said that she talked to everyone, found out where they were from and why and why they were there. I made lots of new best friends, she said. For those who want to be more brave with their food adventures, never suggest pairing up with a friend. One of the things I learned from scuba diving is to never go underwater without a buddy. She said, "When I'm at a restaurant, one of my most favorite things to do is share because I want to try more than one thing. The other benefit to pairing up is if you are not sure about something on the menu, perhaps your friend will order it. My friends from college, Carl and Heather, will eat pretty much anything." She said. So sometimes, if I'm a little bit interested in something, they order it, and I can taste it. Most of the time, in full honesty, I don't even taste it, but I like to see them eat it. They get very happy. While Nibber enjoys cooking some of the Jewish dishes she grew up with, especially something like brisket for the holidays, one of her favorite things to make is chocolate chip banana muffins. When traveling, I basically bring my elementary school lunch on the plane. She said. Never packs a lot of food for road trips too, along with her muffins. Never takes a little bag of carrots, hard-boiled eggs, those little red cheeses, baby bell, and crackers. I literally eat the whole plane ride. She said, "I am having my smorgasbord as I cross different time zones." Another tip for travel, Never suggests, is to make an effort when interacting with the locals. When I was first starting to travel, I had spent a semester in Jerusalem. She said. Some of my friends were in other places around the world, and I went to visit. She continued, "When I was in Paris, I walked into a shop and talked English, and everyone ignored me." In the next shop, never tried another approach. I spoke not very good Spanish with my terrible accent to a woman who promptly answered me in English. She said, "And the lesson I took away from that is, if you make even a small, not great effort, people appreciate that. So I always have to try to learn a few words." Remember, you don't need to cross oceans to have new experiences. I think that people get caught up in what other people are doing. Never says you don't need to quit your job and travel around the United States in an RV or live abroad in hostels for six months. It doesn't have to be that dramatic. Never says if you're not traveling much, my suggestion is to start close to home. There are so many adventures in your own backyard. Learn more about Lisa Never and Brave Ish at lisanever.com and see our blog. At JewishJournal.com, that was Brave Ish's Lisa Never traveling foodie adventures in banana chocolate chip muffin re- muffins recipe by Deborah Deborah Eckerling from the food section. 
Now here's a few articles under Campus Watch by Aaron Bandler. And this first one is, UPenn addresses concerns over upcoming Palestine Rights Literature Festival. The University of Pennsylvania issued a statement on September 12 responding to concerns over the Palestine Rights Literature Festival on campus from September 22nd to the 24th, which will feature speakers including former Pink Floyd bassist Roger Waters and academic Mark Lamont Hill. The university said in the statement that the festival is not organized by the university. As is routine in universities, individual faculty, departments and centers, and student organizations are engaged as sponsors, speakers, and volunteers at this conference intended to highlight the importance and cultural impact of Palestinian writers and artists. While the festival will feature more than 100 speakers, many have raised deep concerns about several speakers who have a documented and troubled history of engaging in anti-Semitism by speaking and acting in ways that de-denigrate Jewish people. The statement concluded, we unequivocally and emphatically condemn anti-Semitism as anti-ethical to our institutional values. As a university, we also fiercely support the free exchange of ideas as central to our educational mission. This includes the expression of views that are controversial and even those that are incompatible with our institutional values. That's UPenn addresses concerns over upcoming Palestine Rights Literature Festival. This next one, Representative Gotheim Princeton Exchange Statements over Anti-Israel Textbook. Representative Josh Gottheimer, Democrat of New Jersey, and Princeton University had a public back and forth over the use of a virulently anti-Israel textbook in one of the university's classes. Gottheimer wrote in an open letter to, university of, to the university on September 13, expressing concern over the book, The Right to Maim, Debility, Capacity, and Disability, being required reading in a humanities course. The congressman argued that the book, uh, the, uh, that the book, the book veers into offensive anti-Semitic blood libel, since it argues that the Israel Defense Forces, in efforts to oppress and confront Palestinians, deliberately creates injury, keeping Palestinian populations debilitated. This claim of Israeli control over Palestinians to maintain dominance is egregiously false. The author repeatedly cast the IDF and Israelis as the sole antagonist in a conflict defined by complexity and decades of strife. He added that deadly terrorist attacks from, Israel, uh, from the West Bank and Gaza have threatened Israel for decades. Princeton University must protect all students, including Jewish students, made to feel unsafe by curricula that incites violence and signals tolerance for Jewish hate and anti-Israel rhetoric, Gottheimer wrote. Given New Jersey's strict anti-BDS laws and Princeton's own anti-discrimination policies, the university is not only, not only minded, but obligated to safeguard its students. University President Christopher S. Gruber responded that same day to Gottheimer with a statement saying that when faculty members teach a course within our curriculum, academic freedom protects their right to decide what texts they will assign and how best to cover the subject matter and that the principle of academic freedom sweeps broadly, encompassing even books that may be deemed offensive, unwise, immoral, or wrong-headed by students, faculty, the university administration, or others. That was Rep. Gottheimer, Princeton Exchange Statements of our Anti-Israel Textbook. This next one is ADL Report, Anti-Israel Activity on College Campuses Nearly Doubled This Year. The Anti-Defamation League released a new report on Wednesday, 
finding that anti-Israel activity on American college campuses nearly doubled this past academic school year. The report documented 665 anti-Israel incidents on American college campuses in 2022-23. The year before, the ADL documented 359 incidents. Most of the anti-Israel incidents in 2022-23 were protests-slash-actions, 326, followed by events, 303, harassment, 24, vandalism, 9, and resolutions supporting the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, 3. There were no anti-Israel incidents of physical assaults. The previous academic year, these numbers were 165, 143, 19, 11, 20, and 1, respectively. Among the incidents that the ADL documented in the 2022-23 academic year included From the River to the Sea, Palestine Will Be Free, graffiti at UC Santa Barbara's Chabad Center in May, anti-Israel activists disrupting former Israeli Knesset member Michael Kotler Wunsch's speech on anti-Semitism in April, and Students for Justice in Palestine chapters in Portland State University and Boston University sharing Instagram posts in February calling for Zionist teachers to be fired. Every year, young Jewish people go to college with the hope that their Jewish identity, including their connection to the Jewish state, will be welcome on campus, ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said in a statement. This sense of community is increasing at risk as concerning anti-Israel incidents increase. University leaders must respond effectively to this hatred so that Jewish students feel safe. That was ADL report. Anti-Israel activity on college campuses nearly doubled this year. This last one, swastika found at Maine School Playground. A swastika was discovered on a slide at a Freeport Maine School Playground on September 12th. The Times Record reported that the playground was located at the Morse Street School, which teaches students from pre-kindergarten through second grade. The Times Record described the swastika as being carved on the inside of the slide and was the size of an outstretched hand. It has since been removed. There was swastika found at Main School Playground, and those are all from Campus Watch by Aaron Bandler. And from the community section, we have New All Women's Gym Opens Up in Pico Robertson by Kylie Ora Lobel. When women want to exercise in a gym, typically they must go to one where they are working out next to men as well. For some religious Jewish women, that won't work. And for other women, they prefer an environment where they aren't among the opposite sex and feel more comfortable. Brenda Andrade, a personal trainer, noticed that there was a gap in the LA marketplace for women to come together and work out in a non-judgmental environment. I wanted to uplift and empower women through fitness, she said. Andrade had an idea. She was going to open a women's fitness club in Pico Robertson. Now her gym, Body Boulevard, located at 930 South Robertson Boulevard, features classes including boxing, cardio, Latin dance, Zumba, and Pilates, along with activities such as meditation, sound healing gatherings, and affirmation circles. Body Boulevard is so much more than a gym, Andrade said. It is a community club where we bring women together to celebrate through sisterhood, fitness, soul, and elegance. Body Boulevard is located at the corner of Robertson and Olympic in the heart of the Jewish community. It has an all-pink decor with pink yoga mats, weights, kettlebells, resistance, bands, and lighting. The mural inside says, I am woman, 
and social media posts from the gym show women doing push-ups and squats and throwing punches to the tune of upbeat pop music. It's all part of the positive feminist message of the space. Women are such an important part of our society and community, says Andrade. They help run the world. It's important that we come together to share in common fitness, personal, professional, and familial goals so that we feel like we have the support of one another to empower us to keep moving forward. At Body Boulevard, we aim to give every woman the space to do just that. The gym's founder worked as a personal trainer at other fitness studios and for private clients for years before deciding to open her own business. She took a leap of faith, starting it at a time when other fitness centers were struggling. During the pandemic, Curves, the women-only national chain of gyms, shut down a number of locations across the U.S., including Los Angeles. Additionally, many people are exercising from home, finding free workouts on YouTube, and using their own treadmills and Pelotons. However, Andrade is hopeful that women will invest in their health and wellness. Memberships start at $30 for one class and go up to $250 for 10 activities during a three-month period. Classes are only 45 minutes long, which is ideal for busy women, especially those with kids. Memberships include access to nutritional classes, beauty workshops, and spa treatments as well. It's all about creating community, which Andrade wants to do on a wider scale in the future. My goal is to grow Body Boulevard to other states, cities, and all over the world, she said. Body Boulevard is such a special space, and I can't wait to share it with the world. There was new A Women's Gym Opens Up in Pico Robinson by Kylie Ora Lobel from the Community Section. All right, let's uh, read some ads from this Jewish journal, September 22nd to the 28th, 2023. And here's one. We do well-being really well, and the experts think so too. We're so proud to offer our residents the nationally ranked best of the best, from quality dining to active social calendars, because we don't just care for you, we care about you. Visit us and see why Fairwinds West Hills was named a Best Independent Living Community by U.S. News and World Report. Call 747-900-2043 today for more information and to schedule your visit. Fairwinds West Hills, 8138 Woodlake Boulevard, Woodlake Avenue in West Hills, 91304. Phone again is 747-900-2043. Website is fairwindswesthills.com. License number 19760-3296. And we have this one right here. This is your time. Sela is your place. Assisted living, independent living, memory care. Discover a modern resort-style retirement community in Pacific Palisades, opening summer 2023 and accepting reservations now. Luxurious residences with designer finishes, floor-to-ceiling windows, and stunning views. Exceptional amenities, including a state-of-the-art vitality center with a hydrotherapy spa. Fresh seasonal cuisine featuring locally sourced produce for healthy living. Personalized care guided by licensed nurses. Visit us, 310-310-8218. Website, livecla.com. And we have this one right here. 
uh, Mount Sinai, Hollywood, one plot for sale, and sold out section of Gardens of Ramah, 9B, lot 1031, space 1. Asking price, $18,000, transfer and endowment included. Sinai price, $23,000. Call, uh, call 917-364-6732. And folks, we are just about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world... Find it all right here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.